You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today's teaching text is from Hebrews six nineteen through seven three. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. This is the word of the Lord. Father, um, I'm thankful for your word. Um, This morning I am mindful of the fact that we'll be talking about a, uh, a person in your story of history that many of us probably have not heard of, not really spent much time on, and are very impressed that she's able to say Melchizedek, because we probably couldn't. Um, So Father, would you, by the power of your Spirit, help make this message not just a history lesson, but rather a life-changing transformation by the power of your Spirit, coming into our hearts to see that you are our true King, you are our true priest. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be found acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. All right, so uh, for many years, uh, my wife Sarah and I were mere appreciators of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, MCU. Uh, we would pick and choose which films we would watch based on the characters that we liked. Uh, and one of my favorite characters, by the way, is Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. He's freaking hilarious. So over time, though, we came to realize that these films were far more interconnected than, than, than we knew, than we thought. We actually started watching Ant-Man 2. And the, the main character, who's played by Paul Rudd, um, who we have a... We really like a lot because he's from Kansas City. We lived in Kansas City. And we were watching Ant-Man 2, and the character is in house arrest. And we're both just looking at each other like, did we miss something? Like, he was not on house arrest at the end of Ant-Man. Like, why is he on house arrest? We were completely, like, oblivious because we hadn't seen another one of the films earlier before. Now, we had enjoyed them, but honestly, I kind of thought the whole franchise with, like, the 22 films that is still growing was, like, overhyped oversaturated for sure. I was like, I'm just tired of Marvel movies. And it got to the point in my, you know, humble arrogance that five years ago, and the perfect timing, by the way, of the Lord, that I actually saw that this was a Facebook memory of mine from five years ago Friday. Five years ago when uh, Avengers Infinity War came out, I made this brilliant post. 
I said, I haven't seen the new Marvel movie. Let me ruin it, though. I bet things get real action-y. And then when you've lost all hope, it turns out really good and happy. You'll likely get to see all the heroes' best movies, best moves, the end. Who's ever seen Avengers Infinity War? I don't know if you remember, that ain't how that movie went. I was dead wrong. I mean, of all the movies that came out during the, the whole franchise, I chose that as the one to just stick a foot right in my mouth. Um, I had no clue. I didn't know. I just assumed, like, it's all the same. Like, why am I going to go pay money to watch the same story over and over again? Now, I bring all this up just to say, one of the really cool things about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the way in which they have brought in the comic book writer and creator of most of these uh, these comics, Stan Lee, into the movies. He makes a cameo appearance, appearance that if you're just a, the casual observer, you, you might just look right past it. You might be like, why do they keep using the same extra all the time? I got a picture of him in several of the movies up here too. Uh, there's pictures of him in Iron Man and in Thor and in Captain America and Avengers and Spider-Man. Like he's in all these movies all the time. And if you don't know who Stan Lee is, you just like look right past it as just another extra. But this man, though his character in the movie has almost nothing to do with the movie, this man who is acting in the movies is vitally important to the, the story because without him and a couple friends, we wouldn't have all of these comic book heroes. So this is how I feel about Melchizedek today. He, he's a major focus of our text in chapter 7. But like in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, if you're reading through Genesis, you might just like completely miss him because you're already like eyes glazed over. He's in a chapter that's got like a bunch of names that you already don't know how to pronounce and you're just like missed him, just wearing right past him. You might not understand how vitally important he is to this whole story. He's like a cameo appearance in the Old Testament. So he only appears two times in all of the Old Testament in like three verses of of Genesis and one verse in a psalm. But the writer of Hebrews, who I think is a Melchizedek fanboy, believes that he is so important to your salvation. He writes an entire chapter about him here. So over the last couple weeks, as I talked to some people in our church and told them what I was going to be preaching on, usually it's like, hey, I'm preaching on Melchizedek. There's folks here in the room. I think there's only one person that's not on staff here, that looked at me and had any idea who Melchizedek was. Uh, but everyone else was like, no clue. Is he in a genealogy that, are we just like dissecting names now? Like, what is Melchizedek? And so if that's you this morning, great. We're going to talk about who this Melchizedek is, and we're going to talk about why he's important. I want to caution one thing, though. Talking about someone that you may have never heard of, this is going to feel an awful lot like a history lesson for a second. Bear with me, please. Just stay with me, stick with me, and we're going to eventually get to why Melchizedek matters. So as we walk through this, I'm basically going to ask three questions. First, who is this king priest who's called Melchizedek? Second, why do we even need a priest? And third, how does this affect my life? So my, my hope is today that we walk away seeing that Melchizedek isn't just some type of cool trivia that now you get to say a fun name at your, your family lunch. That he's not just some cameo appearance that doesn't really matter to the storyline. But I want you to see that Melchizedek is so important to the author of Hebrews because he points us to Jesus. 
He points us to him who is our true king and our true and better uh, priest. So, Hebrews chapter 6 ends with this message, this declaration that we have a hope that's an anchor for the soul. That's how, uh, was it, verse 19 goes. It talks about how Jesus goes behind the curtain. He enters behind the curtain on our behalf and he's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And if you've been reading Hebrews, you're again like, who is this? Here we go, chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, the good thing about Hebrews is that if you're also confused about who Melchizedek is, this entire chapter actually kind of goes through and explains it. Uh, if you are a, a, a Jew in the first century world, you're picking up what the author of Hebrews is dropping down. But if you're like me and not a Jew, not in the first century world, you don't always pick up the, the subtle nuances. When he says that like, Jesus is our forerunner going behind the, the curtain for us, you're like, okay, cool, what curtain? Is he playing hide and seek? Like, I don't know what this is about. The curtain is the thing that divides regular people from the holy of holies. And Jesus has gone back as our representative, our priest. Um, to understand who Melchizedek is, he, he points out that he met Abraham, right? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to catch us up to this point in the story, but our focus is in Genesis chapter 14. Prior to this, you guys have heard of Noah, right? Flood happens. They start to repopulate the earth pretty quickly. The people on the earth decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a giant tower. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. And God says, no, you're not. He scatters them by confusing their language, and they all just disperse across the face of the earth. And then you get a genealogy, and you're introduced to this man named Abram. And God makes a promise to Abram in uh, Genesis chapter 12. He tells him, like, go from your country, and I'm going to show you a land that I'm going to give you. And, and he goes there and builds it, and he tells him, he says, um, I'm going to bless you in order that you would be a blessing to others. He says, if you would trust me, this is in verse 2 and 3, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Check this out. He says, I will make your name great. Why did God scatter the people on Babel? They're trying to make their own name great. And God says, no, you won't. And he scatters them. And then he, the very next narrative, he's turning to Abram, and he says, Abram, if you will just trust me, I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing to others. He says, I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I'm making your name great so that you'll bless other people, is what he's saying. Got it. Cool. Abram's got a covenant with God. Here we go. Here's the Bible story. So then Abram moves into the promised land, sees it's awesome and really good, but then there's a drought, and so he and Sarah and his nephew Lot, they go down to Egypt. Abraham is a big liar, eventually gets kicked out of Egypt. They go back to the promised land. He and Lot have amassed so much wealth, so much livestock, so many servants, that they're just too many people to be in one place, right? Their servants are starting to feud, and so Abraham and Lot say to each other, hey, so that we don't start feuding, let's just separate, 
and you live somewhere, I'll live somewhere else. And so Abraham gives Lot the pick of the litter. Wherever you want to go, you go, and I'll just go somewhere else. And he, Lot um, chooses to go, and it doesn't tell us here, but he goes to a, a city called Sodom, right? And then God tells Abram to, to go look at the land that I'm about to give you. And then here in chapter 14, it starts. I'm not going to li- read these names because I don't want to try to pronounce them. But the beginning of chapter 14, it basically tells us that there's this one king who's pretty awesome. His name is Ketaloamir. And he is kind of like a mob boss. And all these other kings are paying him protection money. It's like, hey, as long as you keep, keep your accounts good with me, I'm going to make sure you're safe. And so there's all these kings that are paying him money. And there are five kings who, after 13 years of paying him money, are like, you know what? I'm done. I'm not paying you money anymore. Let's see what you're going to do. And what he does is he gets his other three kings, and they have a big, big war, big battle, big fight. So four kings and their soldiers are coming against five kings and their soldiers, and they do war. And Ketaloamir is freaking awesome. And so he destroys them. He captures them. He's got uh, hostages and all this stuff. One bad thing as it relates to Abram, because why do we care about this? Lot is in the city of Sodom, and Sodom and their king is one of them that said, you know what, Ketaloamir, I'm not paying you money anymore. So as they capture Sodom, they also capture Lot. And Abraham is a really good uncle. When his nephew is captured, hopefully if there's any uncles in the room, you would go save your nephew. And he goes, he gets a couple friends, and the Bible tells us he has 318 servants that go with him. I don't know why it tells us that number, but it does. 318 servants go, and they face off against these kings that have just beaten five kingdoms. And there are 318 guys go and beat Ketaloamir, and they rescue Lot, and in so doing, they rescue some other people as well. So now look with me in verse 17. We're caught up now. It says, After Abram returned from defeating Ketaloamir, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. That's a Stan Lee-level cameo appearance. I don't know if you know, if you look at the list of kings in the beginning of chapter 14, Melchizedek, Salem, those are not things that are mentioned. This is out of nowhere. Abraham has just saved Sodom, the king of Sodom. King of Sodom's coming out to talk to Abram. Pivot for a second. Here's Melchizedek. Pivot right back. Here's Sodom. It's just super quick. You could read right over it so fast. If you're doing your Bible in a year plan and you're like, I got to get four chapters in today, otherwise I'm behind, you'd look right past him because it seems like a cameo. He's not one of these kings. He's a tenth king. So I'm going to point out just a couple things about Melchizedek that you might not catch. So first, the other king that's being mentioned right here is the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom is coming out to Abraham. He's just been saved by Abraham. And he comes out to Abraham. He's basically like, hey, man, I know you did all the work. And basically, I'm I'm terrible. And I got beat by Ketaloamir. But you beat Ketaloamir. And you saved me. So here's what we're going to do. 
you take the goods, I'm going to take the people. Like, he's starting to barter with someone who just saved his life. Like, no, if you just saved my life, like, you get everything, right? Like, if I get anything from you, that's great, and you're being very gracious to me. But he's already bartering with Abraham, who has just saved his life and his, his people's life. He doesn't care about that. He only cares about accumulating more and more stuff. But the king of Salem, Melchizedek, is different. When he comes out to Abraham, who we don't even know why he came out to Abraham, but he came out to Abraham, he brings bread and wine and he offers a blessing over Abraham. We don't really care about blessings in our age. If I come up to you and I'm like, Troy, blessed are you, Troy, among all Troys in Paragold, you're going to be like, thanks. That was weird. I don't know why he did that to me. That's what he's thinking right now. Uh, but if someone really, really important came up, someone that you highly respect, I don't know, fill in the blank with whoever you think that is. Maybe it's a president type of person or a pope type of person or whatever. Someone very, very important to you that comes out to you and they just say something really, really encouraging to you. It's going to hit differently for you. But blessings in this, this realm, in this age, is just so, so important. And the king comes out and blesses Abraham. At this point, he's just called Abram. And Abram feels called by God to give him a tenth of everything he has. If I come to you and I say, blessed are you in the name of God, are you going to give me a tenth of what you have? Probably not. But Abraham felt, felt called to give him a tenth. This is the first time we ever see a tithe in Scripture. There's been no law yet. There's been no command to give a tithe to God, to the temple, to the priests. Like, there's, that, that, that doesn't exist yet. Abraham is the first time this has ever happened. And this is the reason why we have a tithe, because they're just following in the mo- model of what Abraham did. I want you to notice that back in Genesis 12, when we read this, like, covenant that God made with Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And those who dishonor you, I'm going to curse So Melchizedek comes out of nowhere and blesses Abraham. And this is like the first test of this oath that God has made. And God said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nation. So when Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram, Abram has been blessed by God. He's got a lot of wealth, so much so he can't live in the same area as his nephew. So God's blessed Abram. Melchizedek comes and pronounces a blessing over Abram. So God, so Abram is obeying God's oath and blessing Melchizedek. He's being blessed so that he can be a blessing to someone else. All right, next about Melchizedek. Back in chapter 7 of Hebrews, the author goes on a list pointing out detail after detail after detail about Melchizedek. And in verse 2, again, he says, Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, what his name means is King of Righteousness. And he's also titled, he is the king of Salem, which is to mean the king of peace. Now, names are very important in the Bible. And for many of us, they're important as well. I don't have this plan, but um, for we have two sons. One of them's name is Jackson, which means God is gracious. We chose that name for one. We couldn't figure out a name otherwise. But as we looked at the meaning of the name, God is gracious. We felt so much gratitude to God to even allow us to have a kid because for many, many years we thought we were never going to have a biological child. So God is gracious. When I think of Jack's name, I think of how gracious God is. 
Graham, on the other hand, that just means gravelly road. It means nothing to us. It was a cute name. But in the Bible, names mean something. So Melchizedek's name being king of righteousness and his title being king of Salem, which means he's a king of peace. It's Shalom. Salem is a shortened version of Jerusalem. And this is all pointing to Israel's future history where the king and his palace and the temple and the priests will gather and be in the city of Jerusalem. Not being in the context of Israel's history, though. Many of us don't pick up on how shocking it would be to hear that there's this man who is a king. But the text also tells us he is a priest, the God Most High. The fact that he could be king and priest is alarming. It'd be kind of like having a president also be the pope. Like, you just don't see that happen. And in Israel, it's not even just unlikely. It was supposed to be impossible. It's not the thing that kind of happens because you have to be born in the right family. So the, the, he, the, the author Hebrews continues pointing out that Melchizedek has no mention of a, a genealogy. He's like the son of God, having no beginning or no end. Now, we need a lot smarter person up here to talk about what that even means, that he has no genealogy. But let's just trust the Bible project, guys. What they say basically is they're just emphasizing Melchizedek doesn't come from the family of who Israel says you're supposed to come from the family of. Because that family doesn't exist yet. Because Abraham is the only person in this family. And Abraham hasn't even had a child to this point. He exists in has greater power outside of these genealogies. So Melchizedek was this mysterious person who fulfills this dual role of king and priest. I think we have a basic understanding of why we need a king, right? Why we need a president, which would be like a king. But why do we need a priest? What are the purposes of a king and a priest? A king represents God to the people. He enacts justice and authority protection and care as jared said in the first service at the end he he said if anybody represents god to us it's jesus who is god in the flesh he's representing god to the people but a priest has a different role a priest represents the people to god enacting redemption and restoration but why do i need a priest to do that for me you might be asking Hopefully you are, because that's what I want to talk about. Something has been deeply broken and distorted about how we relate with God and one another. You see, God created us for Eden, this place of flourishing and abundance and, and peace and life. But early on, Adam and Eve believed the lie that the Father is holding out on them. That their ways were better than His ways. Have you ever thought that you know how to run the universe better than God does? Or, or whatever cosmic power that you might believe in, if you don't believe in the Bible or the God of our Bible, like, do you think that you could run the universe better than how it's currently being run? God calls this lack of trust in Him sin. And we learn that the penalty for this action is death. But we also see that God, immediately God says that He will accept a substitute in our place. Adam and Eve would experience the consequences of sin by being separated from the Garden of Eden. And yet they could have their relationship with God restored through a future descendant of theirs. You see, 
God gave us this law, but really, like, the law in the Bible, like, he didn't necessarily want to have to draw out every little detail. He wrote it on our hearts to love him, to love others, to to not be self-absorbed. But every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us is self-absorbed. And so God had to give us the law. Edward Welch says that it was as if humanity could not even be trusted with the most minute of decisions. So God had to give them the law through Moses. And in this law, God showed Moses his plan for how substitutions for sinful man could be processed, which introduced the priestly system. These priests were able to do something that the Israelites could not do for themselves. So maybe we could liken it to a doctor. Uh, I ran a half marathon yesterday with a couple friends, and like the awesome athlete that I am, I tripped and I fell, and I had blood running down my leg throughout the entire race, which was really fun to see people like cheering us on, going, yay, good show. What's going on with him? Like, it was gross. An injury like that, just a scrape on my knee, I can fix myself, right? You can fix yourself, clean it up, bandage it, all that good stuff. You can do that yourself. But imagine that you have a very serious situation. You have something going on, maybe even internally. Something that you don't have the skills and knowledge. You don't have the tools and facilities that a doctor in a hospital in an operating room have. So like the tabernacle had a, a special place for where sacrifices could be made on your behalf. A hospital has an operating room. It's a sacred place, space. You don't just go and hang out in an operating room, right? Sacred things are happening in there. Like, like a priest wore very specific clothing to present the sacrifices to God, a doctor wears very specific clothing to make an operation on your body. They're doing something that you cannot do for yourself. They're repairing something that you cannot perform on yourself. See, God ordained a priestly system because you and I are broken. You and I are sick. And we've done this to ourselves, and we cannot repair ourselves. Now, if you want to be a doctor, you can. If you're about to go to college, you're like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, and you want to be a doctor? Like, you want to put in the time and the studies? You can become a doctor. You've got to get better than a D in biology like i got it but you can be a doctor but not just anybody could be a priest in israel only someone from the family of levi and even then only someone from the fam- from the uh, family of aaron within the family of levi was allowed to be a priest and so what's interesting about melchizedek is he's actually the first ever mention of a priest he comes before Aaron, he comes before Levi, many, many, many years before Aaron established the priestly line, Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. And to this point in Genesis, we see some people making altars to God and making sacrifices because of their sin, but we don't see the office of priesthood. It's not until Moses is given the law on Mount Sinai and given instructions for the tabernacle and the sacrifices. You see, God wants to dwell with his people. God wants to dwell with you. But because of our sin, it can only be in a holy place. And so for Israel in the tabernacle, they built this giant building. At first it was a tent, but um, they built this place, this holy of holies. And in there only one priest could go. And so of the 12 tribes, God told Moses to choose this one. But the writer of Hebrews 
says this, that there's someone who predates Aaron. Someone who's greater than Israel's great father, Abraham. Because you see, when someone blesses someone, it's always the greater to the lesser. So Melchizedek blessing Abraham shows that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, their great father. And all this is getting at is that this mysterious Melchizedek that we've been spending time listening about, and history lessons almost over, he is both a king and a priest. He's an example of what Jesus came to be for us. Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy of being in the tribe of Levi or Aaron, and nor does Jesus. Jesus comes from the family line of Judah, who Moses tells us is the kingly line. But the deal is, Melchizedek isn't here to be your great king or your great priest. He's a pointer to a greater king and a greater priest. Jesus is that great king and that great priest. And through his life and death, resurrection, and ultimately his ascension, Jesus proved that he is the only high priest who stands able to be a mediator for you between you and God. His resurrection is proof of his indestructible life that the, the author of Hebrews talks about. And so, question three is, how does this affect my life? The author of Hebrews goes on this long argument that because in Psalm 110, David predicted that there would be a greater king than himself to come and a greater priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that when this greater king and this greater priest comes, this is why it's important. It would erase, it would complete, it would finish the old system. When a new priest comes, he says, a new system comes with it. A new way of being redeemed back into a relationship with God. Because the great high priest has come, the old system is put away. You see down in verse 19 that through Jesus, a better hope is introduced. Through which we now draw near to God. And that implies that while the old covenant and the old law could satisfy the requirements for covering your sin, it could not provide the means for you to draw near to God. But now, through Jesus Christ, we have a priest who not only mediates for you, he is the sacrifice presented to the Father. And through him, you're able to draw near to God's throne of grace with confidence, he says in Hebrews 4. The old system offered forgiveness, but it never offered nearness. You still had a curtain between you and God and the Holy of Holies. You see, the the people that the author of Hebrews is, is writing to or preaching to, We're so tempted to just go back to the old, familiar, priestly system that they're accustomed to. But the author of Hebrews is pointing out that this is a weak alternative, and it cannot help you. Because of the biblical promise of a better priesthood, the author exposes the weaknesses of the old. This often quoted text from Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted text in the New Testament from the Old Testament, It's like seven or eight times it's quoted in the New Testament by different writers. But this often quoted text that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek also has a prophecy about a greater king than David. A greater priest than Melchizedek, a greater king than David. Jesus quotes it himself in Matthew 22 when he's putting the Pharisees in their place and he leaves them speechless and then they decide to go kill him. Because he's basically saying, I'm this greater king and this greater priest. But then Peter quotes it in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, brothers, I may, I may say to you with confidence 
about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you uh, crucified. This psalm is the same where we're, psalm where God makes an oath of an eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. And in his resurrection, Jesus proves that God has made him both the great high priest and the great king. We need a priest. Because as Tim Mackey says, underneath the statement that Jesus is our high priest, is that we even have a need for a priest. We're not okay. We're morally compromised. We cannot represent ourselves. We cannot do for ourselves what needs to be done. We're too broken. There's only one qualified person to heal a broken soul. And we're so broken that there's only one possible way to repair the broken relationship between us and God. In verse 25, we see that because Jesus lives, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Because he lives to make intercession for you. Throughout Hebrews 7, the author talks often about how this Levitical priesthood could not achieve perfection. But Jesus has been made perfect forever. And he has all the power in the world, and yet he chooses to use that power, that perfection, to help you draw near to God. So what kind of priest is Jesus? Jared shared this with me this week. He said, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we're most ashamed, most defeated. You see, we cannot sin our way out of God's tender care. Jesus is a complete and total Savior who is always praying for me. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Jesus can be your priest forever. Now, I want to, as we close, I want to bring your attention to one more thing about Hebrew, or sorry, uh, Genesis chapter 14. It says that then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out what? What did he bring? Bread and wine. It is so encouraging to my soul that 1,700 years before Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, 1,700 years before Jesus used bread and wine to symbolize his life, death, and resurrection, Melchizedek, this great priestly king, offers bread and wine to Abraham. Abraham may have had no clue that this was going to be pointing to his great Savior one day when he passed the story down through his family. But we know as we look back that this bread and this wine that is offered is the greatest blessing that can be offered to you because this is God's blessing of bringing you into the family. This is why we celebrate communion every week. We remember Jesus' perfect life. We remember Jesus' sacrificial death. We remember his price that he paid for perfection. We remember that he is a priest 
and the King. And so as our band comes forward, I want to ask you just a few questions. What is it that you have been looking for to be your mediator between you and God? What is it that you think will make God allow you to be in His presence? Is it your good works? Is it your tithing? Is it your missional activity? Is it just because God's just going to brush sin under the rug and not care about it? What will allow you to draw near to God? Or maybe, what have you been trying to draw near to to satisfy you other than God? What do you think is going to satisfy you the way God alone can satisfy you? Is it your career or your family? The approval of those around you? If you feel unworthy of this perfect priest, in one sense, you're absolutely right. You're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of this perfect priest. But in another sense, we're completely wrong because what God has said is worthy, is worthy. And if God places his love on your life, then you are worthy. He has chosen you. He wants you. He longs for you. And so if he says you're worthy, who are you to say to yourself, you're not? And this is a truth I have to hear often because I live in this state of like toxic shame that I can just never measure up. I'm not enough. I don't have anything to offer. I beat myself up all the time. I want to compare myself with others and be impressive the way that you're impressive. And just this past week, we were on a retreat with some other Soma pastors and many of our staff and families. And we had this exercise where we're supposed to go and see if we can hear from God. Practice like you're really hearing God's voice. So I'm in silence and solitude and I'm praying and I'm trying to work something up. I'm trying to be really impressive. I'm trying to have something that someone's going to go, wow, God said that to him. It's awesome. I literally was even trying to get this like feeling of like this weird thing about how you can touch and feel your skin at the same time. Like it was really weird. I was like, no, it's not God. If it's weird, it's probably me. And I heard God's very gentle voice just say to me, Chris, you don't have to be profound. That's what he wanted to say to me. I feel this need to be profound. I feel this need to be impressive to you. And God's saying, hey, is my love enough for you? You don't have to be profound for the people that are here. I love you. I called you. I made you my son. Is that enough for you? As we sang earlier, man, Jesus is our only king forever. And I hope that's true for you. And if it is, he's made you worthy. He can be enough for you because he's offered to sacrifice everything that you need. We're going to sing a couple songs and then we'll take communion in a little bit. First, let's pray. Father, um, hmm. Thank you that you are enough for me. And help me to really believe that. Help me believe that I don't need the approval of a single person in this room because you're enough for me. I'm just not thinking that. I actually kind of say something like that to my son. 
he has a hard day at school, if he feels bullied, if he feels rejected, I'll let him know, hey, I love you. Let my love be more important than their rejection of you. So Father, this morning, will you let your love break into our worlds and be enough for us? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.